0: Good morning, welcome to Forestbrook. What a lovely sound that is. I have um, seasonal allergies and every spring I have a reaction to trees uh, when they're uh, pollinating and so I take medicine for that and and I'm always you know kind of counting down you know to to the start of spring when I'm finishing my allergy shots and then the end of spring when I'm you know finally kinda over this hump but on Thursday I was reminding myself that I almost always get a spring cold as a result of all of this at the end. And I thought, hey, this year I missed it. (laughs) Started the next day. So uh, I apologize for that. But the cool thing is I'm in that radio voice stage. So, um, yeah, so. uh, Work it, work it. Yeah. Herbie Kuhn might might be threatened here. I don't know if Herbie's here today or not, but... Yeah, <laughs> ah, Herbie, you can see, what a life you got, man, that's awesome. <clears throat> uh, shout out to the Yorks who are joining us today. Where are they? Dwayne and Cheryl and Alicia, there they are. Welcome, you guys. Great to have you with us today. Uh, we miss you still, uh, so uh, please uh, say hi to them and enjoy their, uh, their company while they're here. We're in the final uh, part of this series in Ephesians, where we're looking at Paul's uh, instruction of how to live a life of love in the household, and uh, he's using the Roman household code here as uh, an example of what he's talking about. And actually, um, Paul is actually when he's referring in this passage, he's actually referring to the to the to the Greek domus. The idea came from Aristotle in 300 BC. And Aristotle uh, posited that to make it a good city, you needed good households. And so his ideal household uh, contained three relationships, all revolving around uh, the head of the household, who was the patron for everyone who lived in the household. And so those relationships were the man and his wife, the man and his children, and the man and his household slaves. Uh, And that became the standard for the Greco-Roman Empire and the Hellenized uh, well, time that Paul lived, that was the standard, that was the ideal household, was this, was this Greek domos. Even though many, many households didn't actually look like that in Rome, this, was an, this, this model of household was actually uh, primarily for the uh, elite, for the uh, aristocracy, because they're the ones who could afford it. Most other people didn't live like this at all. But the idea was that that if you had virtue in the home, you would have virtue in the city. That was Aristotle's ideal. And so because of that, you know, both the Greeks and the Romans, they pursued this ideal of the ideal household. Now, Paul is neither embracing that or rejecting it. It just simply was. That was the way, that was, that's like us talking about our nuclear family in our world today. It's just a statement of fact. That's what it looks like. Even though we would look at it and say, yeah, but there's there's blended families, there's so many other models of family, but we would all understand what we mean when we say the nuclear family, and we would understand that to be a cultural thing. And the Greek Roman domos was like that. It was just a cultural thing. It was the thing that was. And Paul is neither endorsing it nor rejecting it. What he's doing is breathing the gospel into it. He's breathing the way of love in Jesus into that structure, into that context. And one of the ways that we know that he's doing that is because of this passage that we're looking at today, in the passage of slaves. You'll notice that in, in Paul's letter, all three of these relationships revolve around the man, the patron, the head of the household, right? Um, and here we talk about the relationship between the household master and the household slaves in this passage. Um, and so when we look at that, we realize, okay, well, that's cultural. We don't have that today. So clearly that's that's, but, but for them, that was the norm. That was the reality. That, that's what that household looked like. So here's the passage. Let's get into it. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 9 to 5. And it says this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, As if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism in him. Let's pray for just a second before we go on. Our Father in heaven, we have just read uh, from your holy word. We love and accept and submit ourselves to your scriptures. Because in doing that, we are submitting ourselves to you. Father in heaven, the subject we're about to talk about is difficult. And it's one where for hundreds and hundreds of years... We Christians got it wrong. And in getting it wrong, we got it wrong to to great expense and the suffering of others. Father, we submit ourselves to you. We pray, Holy Spirit, we invite you, welcome you, ask you to do your work through these verses to us today, to speak to us today through these verses. Help us to have open ears, open hearts, and open minds. Help us to remember, Lord, that, that um, justice is your thing, and we are to reflect that just as Jesus did. So we ask for your presence and your blessing to be with us, and in his name we pray, amen. So when we read this passage, typically, as I said, we immediately transliterate it in our day. In fact, if you look at many of the common commentaries, like the single-volume commentaries, they almost all transliterate it automatically. And they say, yeah, we don't have slaves in our day, so the principle here is an employment situation between a boss and an employee. And the relationship of love, the relationship of respect, actually is, is, you know, in our day, we look at that and we say, we're going to use this passage to reinforce that. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not what I want to do today. What I want to do today is look at this passage for what it says. And look at this passage for its context. And I want us to face up to um, what can be a bit of a a challenging and hard reality. That this happened. And what we did with this. I want to do this for two reasons. One is because this this passage of verses to me is an excellent example of how important it is that we read the Bible in its historical cultural context. And so we want to unpack that a little bit. But then also, it's a sobering example of what can happen when we get it wrong. So let's get into it. Here's the principle uh, that we want to unpack. And, and um, if you have never read Gordon Fee and uh, and um, Fee and Stewart's book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a great book. It's easy easy to read. But it's a great introduction to, to the whole idea of biblical interpretation. Of biblical interpretation. And here's what they say in their book. They say because the Bible is God's word, it has eternal relevance. Absolutely. It speaks to all humankind in every age and in every culture. But because God chose to speak his word through human words in history, every book in the Bible also has an historical particularity. Each document is conditioned by the language, time, and culture in which it was originally written. Now, that's just a fact. That's just the way the Bible comes to us. But here's how it works. And the chart should pop up now if you can have a look at that. The idea is that you have an original setting. Something back in history, some original time, whether it's with the nation of Israel or the patriarch Abraham or even in the oral tradition of prehistory. Whatever it is, there's, there's an original setting, whether it's the time of Jesus or the time of the early church. There's a historical original setting. Where something is happening and God is interacting with a group of people. In time, in history, in the midst of a culture. And into that God speaks. And he speaks through a prophet. He speaks through an evangelist. He speaks through Jesus. He speaks through an historian, however. But somehow he speaks and what he says gets written down. And there you have your text. The text, what is written down as God speaks into that situation. Now the challenge is that we're thousands of years removed from that situation. And we live in a very different world. Our culture doesn't look like that. Our culture doesn't look like the Greco-Roman culture. It doesn't look like the ancient Jewish culture in rabbinical times. It doesn't look like ancient Israel in the wilderness. You and I live in a different world in a different time. It's changed remarkably And so we have to recognize that and recognize the differences between our culture and the original culture, and then we have to ask ourselves, what what is God saying? What did God say to them, and how does that apply to us? What did God say to them, and how does that apply to us? That is the first rule of biblical interpretation. It's the first rule, and Fee and Stewart, in their book, say that no text of Scripture can be taken to mean anything in our time that it could not possibly have originally meant back in the original day. That's the first rule of interpretation. You know, I uh, I didn't grow up with that. I grew up in a church that taught, you know, that you don't need to interpret the Bible. You just take it at face value, and you do what it says. So we were Seventh-day Sabbatarians, because in Exodus chapter 20, it says that the Sabbath is the sign of God's people, and the sign of the covenant. And so I grew up in a church that said that any Christian who went to church on Sunday was sadly mistaken, because they weren't marked by the sign of the Seventh-day Sabbath. Now, we, we believe that, you know, you take the Bible, you level it out, and what it says here, it, you know, it's, it's eternal. It never changes. And the remarkable thing about that church and me is we didn't understand the difference between the Old and the New Covenants, which is a pretty big miss. The other thing that we lost in the middle of all of that is the importance of Jesus. And that Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. And everything else gets filtered through Him. We'd lost that too. So I grew up with that. But why is it so important that we learn to do this correctly? Because if we don't, here's what can happen. Here's what can happen. This is the reality that I wanted us to spend a little bit of time on. Noel Ray, in his book, The Great Stain Witnessing American Slavery, says that the Christians used two passages of Scripture. To rationalize the injustice and the oppression and the horror of the transatlantic slave trade. And I almost don't want to read them. When I read Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 27 of the curse of Canaan, I read that and I've never, I, you know, I can remember hearing about it as a kid in the way that it was interpreted, you know, by the slave traders and, and by, you know, the, the, the Christians of that day. But it's offensive even to just kind of hear it and speak it. Because the idea, the way that they took that passage, the curse of Canaan, and this is when, when Noah got drunk and his, you know, his sons, you know, Canaan went in and saw him in his nakedness and the other two sons went and covered him up and didn't see it. And so Moses cursed Canaan. And he said, you're going to be a servant to your brothers. And the way this verse got interpreted and used, somehow in the passage there, and I don't mean to offend, but this—we uh, have to be. I, I want us to be honest here. I need to be honest here, as a white European male. I need to be honest here. Somehow, in that translation, Canaan became black, the son of Ham. And somehow, in that translation, that passage was used to justify the idea that somehow members of the human race who were black were cursed and were intended to be the servants of their brothers. And the other passage of Scripture that was used by the slave trade to justify what they were doing was this passage in Ephesians that we just read. It normalizes slavery. It institutionalizes it. It does give instruction for masters to be benevolent, and it tells slaves you need to obey. And it puts Jesus right into the middle of slavery. This is not an academic exercise. The transAtlantic slave trade was horrific. It began in 1480 and lasted 400 years. An estimated 12 and a half million Africans were transported as slaves to the Americas. Many, many more died along the way. Those are just the ones who survived. In order to justify this, many were forcibly converted to Christianity while shackled on board the slave ships. Can you, think of that? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine these, these slave traders talking Jesus to these human beings who are locked in shackles in these ships in the most horrific of conditions and somehow talking Jesus to them and telling them they need to except Jesus. I mean, it boggles my mind. It boggles my mind. Europeans believed that they had every right and the authority of God's Word to do this. And it wasn't until the 1700s when the Quakers reframed the problem as a moral problem And began to shame governments and slave traders and slaveholders into change. In 1789, after almost a hundred years of shaming the slave masters and political leaders, the abolitionists succeeded in getting governments to stop it. Shirley and I went on our trip to the East Coast last summer. And... um, at the very end of our trip, we stopped in Shelburne, Nova Scotia, because we wanted to go and visit the Black Loyalist Heritage Museum. Shirley had read the book, The Book of Negroes, and she you know, had, had made the connection there, and, and the, the person who's described in the book actually was one of those um, former slaves from the Loyalists that came to Nova Scotia in the 1700s. There were 3,000 of them, I think, um, after the American Uh, revolution and they were they were allowed to come to Canada and settle in Canada and it's the story of this one woman. And we 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 got to Shelburne and it's this quaint little lovely little town, beautiful little town and, and we toured it and we went through, you know, some of the mills and we went through some of the houses. And at one point we were actually standing in the very house where this woman had lived and served. And we were down in the kitchen where she would have worked and cooked. And in the wall behind us were rings of iron cemented into the wall. And the guide said that's where they used to chain the slaves. When they weren't working, they'd shackle them to the wall so they wouldn't run away. And I just felt such, such grief as that began to kind of sink in. As I began to think about that, that's not the worst of it. When those 3,000 came to Canada, they weren't allowed to live in Shelburne. They were told they had to go make a community for themselves in the forest outside of the town. Yeah, they had their freedom, but that's all they had. They had to carve the village of birchwood out of the forest. And in the first winter, they had to dig ditches and build lean-tos over them, and they survived that first Canadian winter living as families in those ditches. And out of that, they built a thriving community. The story of overcoming is incredible. As we walked through that museum and we saw the artifacts and we read the stories of of slavery and and we saw the... The images of it, and we and we heard the stories, and I felt great shame, and I should. I absolutely should. But then to realize that my ancestors had used the very scriptures that I love to justify it is terrible. We have to face the fact that we have verses like this in our Bibles. Look at what this says. If a man beats his male or female slave with a rod, and the slave dies as a direct result, he must be punished. But he is not to be punished if the slave gets up after a day or two, since the slave is his property. That's written in the Law of Moses. It comes right after the Ten Commandments. It was given at Mount Sinai as part of the constitution of the nation of Israel. Look at it. I mean, does that not... You know, I can explain it, right? I can use my, my cultural historical method and I can explain it. I absolutely can. But I also know how it was used incorrectly. I also know how it was used to justify oppression and abuse. I know how it was misapplied and misinterpreted and misused when it was taken at face value because people didn't dig into the historical cultural context. And they used it to do terrible things. Where is Jesus in that? Where is Jesus in that verse? And those who knew Jesus could tell the difference. Look at this quote by Frederick Douglass, um, one of the abolitionists, an American abolitionist, who says this. He says, Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy, it is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure peaceable and impartial christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt slaveholding, women whipping, cradle plundering, partial and hypocritical christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason, but the most deceitful one, for calling the religion of this land christianity. I mean that's that's a that's a terrible quote to read and look at, but I think it's one that I want to reflect on. It's one that I want want to own as a descendant of white European Christianity, as a descendant of of the people who architect Christianity as we have it today in the Western world. Christendom belongs to us. We made it. We created it. And both its strengths and its weaknesses, we have to own And surely this is one of its greatest, greatest weaknesses. Richard Rohr, the Franciscan monk, says that the roots of white slaveholder Christianity run deep in American Protestantism even today. That's a that's a terrible statement. But what if it's true? What if it's true? that the roots of white slaveholder Christianity run deep in American Protestantism today. That's a stunning statement. So I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with our history. I don't know what to do with how we have used scriptures to hurt and oppress others. Except to confess it. To say that we did it, to say that it was wrong, and to seek forgiveness, and to open our eyes so that we never do it again. I want us to sit with that for just a minute, and then Velma Blenheim is going to come up. She has a poem that she's written, which tells of a grandmother telling her granddaughter about a visit to a museum, and then I'll come back and we'll finish.
1: No longer slaves. Come along, child. Hold my hand. Here we are. This is the museum. See that artifact there? The ship's lower half, shackled slaves crammed in like sardines. Can you hear their cries above the crashing waves? God heard. We'll start here, in this room. We cannot forget the misery of the Middle Passage. But to be clear, child, black history doesn't start with slavery, oh no. You see, long before slavery's atrocities, there were kingdoms in Africa. There were universities commerce, art, artisans. But today, today as we contemplate slavery, I want to relate something Jesus tells me every day. I no longer call you slaves, for a master does not confide in slaves. Now you are my friends that's in John the Gospel of John these artifacts they tell a sad story I won't lie to you child that trip was terrible but I always want you to remember this black history is the history of tragedy and triumph adversity and achievement, resistance, and resilience. You must remember. And the thing is, it's not just our story. That gory story, it's also God's glory story. And when we pause and remember the terrible history of slavery, of humans bought and branded, sold and resold, overworked and underfed, downtrodden, demeaned, dealt blows inside and outside so that trauma scars remain generations later. We can still say, "Disgrace grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. John Newton wrote that. You know, he was a former slave trader turned pastor and preacher. He wrote that. Hymn 41, published 1771. See, every time we sing Amazing Grace, we sing Black history. And we sing God's victory. A slave ship decommissioned 400 Lives no longer bound, and a white man's soul no longer captive. Grace leads us home, all of us. Black, white, brown, and all shades in between. So come along, child. Let's enter resistance room. See that wall over there? That's the wall with the M's. Mandela, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and Marcus Garvey. And then down this hall, the Wonder Woman. Call out their names, child. Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, ain't I a woman? Rosa Parks and Viola Desmond. Why is your picture here, you ask me? Answer me this. What's Jesus asking you to do now that he has freed you? Remember what he said. I no longer call you slaves. You are my friends. Go ahead, child, push that button. You hear the civil rights marchers singing we shall overcome they overcame we overcome now see God stepped into history as he did for israelite slaves fleeing egypt God he is history maker time keeper Museum curator and abolitionist lawyer. See the abolitionist wall? See the people God raised up to raise a cry against the slave trade? That one there is William Wilberforce. He's John Wesley's friend. White, black, missionaries, ministers, men, women all working together. And then August 1, 1834 in the British colonies, and later 1865 in America, Emancipation Day came. Oh, happy day. See that picture? It's a celebration of Emancipation Day. I know sometimes you wonder what's happening in your grandma's church. All that singing and rejoicing. But every Sunday morning, our celebration signifies emancipation. My chains are gone, child. And freedom doesn't wait for February to testify. Truth is, Jesus frees all, every day. Pays blood price for all of sin's slaves. And then he says to all, I no longer call you slaves. I call you friends. Friends. Unfathomable. Unbelievable. And yet, undeniable. Jesus. He issued the first, the foremost, the final Emancipation Proclamation. Come along, child.
0: Thank you very much, Vilma. That was, that was beautiful. I really appreciate you doing that. Sadly, slavery isn't the only thing that we Christians have gotten wrong. There's a long list of other things that scriptures were used to justify at the expense of others. And uh, you'll see some of them up here behind me. And I could talk about each one. I could make a case for each one. We could look at the scriptures that were used uh, to rationalize and, and justify uh, such practices. Um, but we're not gonna, we won't take the time to do that. I think, I think we've made the point. The misuse of scripture... To rationalize the terrible injustice and oppression of slavery is not a unique example. There are many others. But it begs the question, where might we be doing it today? Is it possible we're doing it today? Is it possible that our reading of Scripture today is somehow causing us to rationalize injustice and oppression and seclusion. We've been stressing in this series on ethics that living a life of love like Jesus and giving yourself away for others is the ultimate ethic. And it is. I believe Paul says that. I believe Paul supports that. When we fail to interpret the Bible accurately, it opens the door for Scripture to be used in ways that look nothing like Jesus. And that is not Christianity. Christianity. Christians are imitators of Jesus. We live a life of love like he did and sacrifice ourselves for others. That is the Christian way. And when we live differently or we say things differently or especially if we use scripture to justify any other behavior than that, we are not being Christian and we are not being true to our Lord and Savior Jesus. So where might we have to check our thinking and check our behaviors and check our actions. Where might we rather than being like Jesus to others being an offense to Jesus to others. A Christian is first and foremost an imitator of Jesus and is always an imitator of Jesus. That's what it is to be a follower. Of Jesus. We're going to do communion in stations. And I do that because I I, I wanna, after reading this passage, as we come to the table, I want to encourage us to look around. Look around, look at one another. Look at who we are, look at who God has brought together. Look at the look at the growing and wonderful diversity in this congregation. Men and women and younger and older and and you know, all the you know different races, and and just but look at the diversity. And realize that God loves that diversity. He made us this way. Christianity was never intended to be homogeneous. It's always about bringing one more person to the table, no matter who they are. Let's let's, let's read this in Luke chapter 14. Where we have the parable of the great banquet. We're about to have a feast We're about to have a foretaste of a great banquet. We're about to eat the bread and drink the cup that remind us of who we are and how we got to be God's people. And here's a a vision of a future one in a parable here, in the parable of the great banquet. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the person who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I have to go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've bought five oak of oxen. Yoke of oxen. Yeah, yoke of oxen. And I'm on my way to go try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, Hey, I just got married. I can't come. A servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in those who are poor, those who are crippled, those who are blind, and those who are lame. Sir, the servant said, What you've ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out into the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get to taste at my banquet. Go out, bring in those who are poor, those who are lame, those who are crippled, those who are blind, those who don't belong at the feast, those who don't look and act and think and seem like the rest of us. Go out and find them and bring them in so that my house will be full. God's doing that. He's doing that here. Some time ago, we recognized you know, that we live in a very diversified community. Um, and we recognized that we were largely a, uh, a Caucasian congregation. And, and we were praying. We said, God, you know, help our congregation to grow to reflect more of the community around us and look at you. That's God doing that. God has, If you're not white and you're here, God's called you to be here and we're so grateful you're here. Because God planted you here so that we could have a house that is full with the people he loves. And those are not just people who look like me or think like me or act like me. So when you come to the table, realize that it's his table. You're invited, but so is everybody else. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So celebrate this table, celebrate as you look around with your brothers and your sisters and you look at those whom God has saved and God has called to belong along with you. And then when you go back and sit down again, look at the empty seats and realize that somewhere out there is someone for that seat that God will bring. And let's never say no to them because they're different from us. Let's pray. And then you can come to the stations. There's four, two in the front, two in the back. Father in heaven, the mystery of the gospel is that you didn't just come to save your people, the Jews. The great mystery of the gospel that Paul says is that you were also saving the nations those who were not part of your people in the first covenant. But Lord, humanity has always been yours. All of us are yours. All of us are made in your image. All of us are created to be with you forever. And you love every single one of us. Yes, some of us are your people now. And we know that, we're saved, we have Jesus, we have your spirit, we know you, we love you, we walk with you, we know what it is to be loved by you, to have our sins forgiven, to be washed in the precious blood of the Lamb. And you love us. But you you also love those who are not here yet. And you're looking out over our shoulders at them, out into those harvest fields and saying, go get one more. Go get one more. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to be the people like Jesus who are constantly on the move looking for one more. Fill your house. Fill your house with the people that you want to be here. And may there never be anyone who feels they can't be here because of some idea that we have that excludes them. Help us to be like Jesus. It was for the sake of the world that he gave his life and shed his blood. It's because he loved the world. So, as we take of the cup and take of this bread, may we be filled with that same love. May we be genuine Christ followers, living lives of love and giving ourselves away for one another. Would you bless the cup? Would you bless the bread? May this be a holy moment as we have communion with you and look around at one another and realize what we are a part of, this glorious thing called your people. And may your will be done and your kingdom come here at Forestbrook as it is in heaven. In his name we pray, amen.